This is the Fire These Times, and I'm your host, Julia Yuba. Welcome everyone to the Fire These Times. I'm your host, Julia Yub, and today we'll be talking with three guests, Daniel Kurd, Leila Shami, and Romeo Kokriatsky, each one of whom have, have been on this podcast before, to talk about a, a piece that we all did together for the South-South Movement um, website, uh, which obviously I will link in the description, entitled A View of Anti-Imperialism from the Periphery. And the, so the essay we wrote uh, was published, uh, what, a yeah, a month ago, almost exactly. Uh, we're recording this on the 8th of August, 2023. And the essay was part of the South-South Dialogues Beyond the Colonial Vortex of the West, West is in quotation, subverting non-Western imperialisms before and after 24th of February, 2022. The date obviously referring to uh, what's called the full-scale invasion or the second invasion of Ukraine by Russia, pretty much ongoing, obviously. That event, for lack of a better term, has would at least like Dana, Leila and I kind of launched uh, or kickstart, if you want, a bunch of different reflections that brought us back to what we were thinking about related to Syria, obviously to Palestine, the sort of the role, the, the default attitude almost that we've, we have been seeing as I'd never know if it's a majority, but it's definitely what we would call hegemonic on the left of at the very, at the very, like the best case scenarios often tend to be like hesitant on the matter. And the worst case scenarios being, you know, basically overtly whitewashing or supporting or whatnot uh, regimes like Putin's regime in the name of some pretty vague and ill-defined and contradictory um, anti-imperialism. And that's something that we saw with Syria before and pretty much still ongoing uh, folks tend to forget these days that syria is still a thing the regime is still bombing russia for that matter is still bombing despite supposedly having its hands full in ukraine and it seems that we got we we have reached a point or at least i i think so where we need to really find different terminologies maybe and of course that essay has is an attempt to do so i've i've personally been quite keen on using the term the periphery as a, um, not necessarily as a replacement for the, the global south, because I know that there's like an entire history for this, but more of like as a, as a supplementary concept, something that actually adds, makes it a bit richer, because global south often does not include what is usually called post-Soviet countries. And I've been recently actually made aware of how even the term post-Soviet is kind of a bizarre term, because we don't, we don't call Germany a post-Nazi state. Uh, but it is, <laughs> but we don't use those terms. And so there's something about the post-Soviet space, quote unquote, that I think also needs to be questioned. But anyway, so this, is, this was sort of what we had in mind. We were uh, contacted and in the end we, we published on this uh, southsouthmovement.org's website. And I guess I would like to ask the three of you, I don't quite know which order we're going to do. Uh, let's do it by alphabetical order. So Dana, Leila, Romeo. First, introduce yourselves for those who have not listened to any of the previous episodes, which they should, and if they haven't, they should feel bad. But uh, if they haven't, if they are like bad people, can you please introduce yourselves? All right. Uh, my name is Dana Elkerd. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Richmond. I write about Palestine, authoritarianism in the Arab world, um, international intervention, pronouns she, her. Yeah, everybody should feel bad for not listening to all of my interviews. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I'm Leila, uh, Leila Shami. 
I'm an activist involved mainly in human rights, social justice issues. I occasionally write and I'm the co-author of a book on Syria called Burning Country, Syrians in Revolution and War. I'm Romeo Kukratsky. I'm a journalist in Ukraine and I'm the managing editor of The New Voice of Ukraine, which is a Ukrainian English language news site. And I'm also the host of the podcast Ukraine Without Hype, which is Ukraine news with hopefully less bias and hype <laughs> than you would otherwise find. And it's an awesome podcast that I also went on, which you should check out and feel bad if you have not. I like feeling my, I like making listeners feel bad at the beginning. I feel like that's a good marketing strategy. <laughs> the four of us have trajectories, I would say, especially in the past couple of years. Uh, Leila and I go a bit further back then as well. Uh, Romeo roughly around the, the, the time Putin decided to do his thing. We went through different uh, conversations. Of course, we're also in like a, a number of different groups and we, We've been seeing some parallels, some differences that are interesting as well, but like some parallels between our contexts, or at the very least, between how our contexts, uh, the place we places we come from, places we cover, places we think about a lot or have some connection to, are discussed, are talked about, are represented, right, in, in the circles that we either maybe used to hang out in or have some kind of connection with, like definitely something, it's not like an in, in unfamiliar space, let's say, political space. It's broadly defined or talked about as like the left. And I think more specifically, we would call it like the tanky left, maybe or the authoritarian left. But crucially, for me, the authoritarian left, and this is, this is an insight that um, I got from um, a Bosnian uh, acquaintance and friend that Leila knows, uh, Adnan. Um, who had mentioned like the reason why it works, like this this uh, viewpoint, let's say, which we call like essentialist anti-imperialism or pseudo anti-imperialism or alt-imperialism, and I had so many different words that we can we can call it, uh, which is again like this this idea that basically America is the only imperialist uh, game in town, and therefore anything, pretty much that can supposedly weaken America or be against America or whatever, even when that's not even the case, but anything that can vaguely be argued to be so should either be supported or at least uh, whitewashed or, you know, downplayed or whatever. But the insight I got from Adnan, uh, given that he, he, his experiences as a survivor of the Bosnian genocide, is that the, the reason why this sort of works is that there is an already present, how do I say this, like an idea space in which it's almost like the default in some sense within the left. And by default, I mean that in the same way as, uh, and we're going to get into it as well, like it's not very complicated or difficult to be pro-Palestine on the left. It's, it's, like, it's almost like, uh, it's like how you get your card when you enter the club. It's a very easy thing to do. It's almost like at the time, I suppose, like being for Irish independence and like there is a history to... Uh, being pro-Palestine and the left. And of course, Dana, your contribution in, in this uh, piece is partly about that history, which is a rich one and something that, that has a lot of pros in it, obviously. And then the flip side is that almost through that same, or almost like it feels like the flip side of that, uh, how to say this, the, the flip side of, the, of that coin in some sense is that none other contexts that are not Palestine and other oppressors that are not Israel are often just seen in, in comparison to those oppressors, i.e. in comparison to 
usually America and Israel kind of being this extension of America in, in such a discourse. And this is, this is sort of what we've experienced when it comes to Syria and what uh, still being experienced when it comes to Ukraine, obviously. Uh, Russia being the, the obvious one here, but honestly, China is the, another example that we've been seeing a lot. And of course, Iran in the Arab world's context, at least in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, and so on and so forth. So I just want to get some initial reflections uh, on your part. Um, again, alphabetical or whoever wants to raise their hands or just goes and wh whoever yells the most, uh, the fastest gets to be the first to go. <laughs> just reflections on your pieces, on your sections, um, and also like on, on kind of the entire thing, really, and maybe the project that this South-South movement is uh, doing, which is a very interesting one, obviously. So to to share a couple of completely, I think, disconnected anecdotes, but maybe I'll be able to to, to string this into a coherent thought. Um, since the the full scale invasion, one of the biggest kind of changes that I've seen um, the Ukrainian left go through, and yes, Ukraine has a left. For people that are not aware, um, this is not a purely Western invention. Um, is the discovery of many Ukrainian leftists that, well, the rest of the world, or specifically the rest of the left, like, hates us. Um, it was, for me, since I grew up in the U.S., and I had experience and exposure with the American left prior to, to moving back to Ukraine, um, it was less surprising, though the, the vitriol and vem the, the vehemence and the way the Ukraine, like Ukraine became a identifier card for people. Like um, Joey, you were saying, you know, you, you enter the club, you get a, I support Palestine card. Um, and the flip side of that, it, it seemed um, out of nowhere was Ukrainians are all Nazis. Um, it was a, it was a really weird thing for, for so many of the Ukrainian left to discover because we always had this idea of internationalism where the left obviously is, uh, should not be bound by national borders or um, ethnic divisions or what have you. This is a universal, explicitly a, a universalist uh, worldview where we think everyone should have rights regardless of who or what they are. But that doesn't apply to, to some. And um, th this is something that uh, Syrian friends and um, comrades brought up is like the the meme of the guy being hung and asking the the person next to him oh first time um because while this kind of um depersonalization dehumanization was new to to ukrainian leftists it, obviously there are people um who who had gone through this process years ago especially um syrians before bosnians where we are for whatever reason just declared by white swaths of the the um american western left to like not be worth it or we fundamentally cannot be leftists um and that was such a such a weird thing to go through like i said for me it wasn't weird that people had this position it was weird when people refused to learn anything or listen to left voices from ukraine refused to educate themselves at all on on the topic and it quickly just devolved into memes of uh, Ukrainian Bandera Nazis just purely regurgitated um, Russian propaganda, which intellectually I understood, but at the same time, you know, you're presumably talking to people who share your goals, right? You share 
a goal of an anti-capitalist world, a world where people are free to do the things they want to do without oppressions upon oppressions being piled up on them, a world where we believe people have uh, inalienable rights. Um, and you'd think that that would be enough of a bridge to convince people uh, that, hey, listen, I am Ukrainian. Um, the what what all of this stuff that you've learned is is incorrect or is flawed or is just an outright lie. Um, and then please listen to us. And the refusal to do so um, still to this day is is pretty confusing to me. I've made my piece that um, the <laughs> the ideal of internationalism in a large parts of the Western left is basically um, non-existent and is probably impossible to. Um, to revive, but it's it's still a struggle to really comprehend how people that you would otherwise agree with um, have such utterly abhorrent um, and imperialist ideas about you. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm like for for uh, listeners who don't know and who cannot see me in person, I'm uh, not a pure Slav. My dad is from Bangladesh, and. I don't look Slavic. I look more South Asian than I do Slavic. Um, and it's really weird when people accuse me of being a Bandera lover or a Nazi or that I want to, like, destroy socialism or whatever. Um, by the way, the Soviet Union destroyed socialism. Don't, don't, don't put that on me. Um, put that on Lenin. Uh, but it's, 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 so, it's so tough to wrap your mind around the the inability or or the non-desire of these people to learn literally anything outside of their preconceived notions. Um, and that's really what what drove my my thought process when I was making my contribution to the art is I want to make it I, I want to lay out how absurd it is to claim that you have these anti-imperial, anti-racist ideas, anti-fascist ideas. And yet you buy into this essentializing reactionary worldview when it comes to some people. I relate to a lot of what Romeo is saying, because I think very much we come to an awareness of some of these problems with the authoritarian left through the lens of our own struggles. And I think for, for Syrians and for myself, and this is what I spoke about in the piece, that a big wake up call was. 2018, April 2018, where we saw large protests across the Western world um, that were bringing together people from the left, but also people from the far right to oppose the war on Syria. But the war that they were opposing was not the genocidal war that Assad had been waging on the Syrian people for um, so many years, but was targeted airstrikes by the US against the military capabilities of a regime which had just carried out a chemical weapons attack and massacre in the Damascus suburbs. So what um, Romeo says about a lot of people that were trying to call this out in Ukraine were tarred as Nazis. We also went through in Syria, whereas many people that were trying to raise awareness of um, the problems of this kind of discourse were targeted as being jihadists, as being is Islamists, as being terrorists. And people were genuinely more concerned that um, we were 
leveling criticisms against the left and that that may, might damage the left, then we were trying to raise awareness of very problematic narratives which were actually contributing to continued attacks, continued genocide against civilian populations in our context. So we've all come to uh, these kind of realizations through the lens of our own struggles. But I think what's very nice is that we all met each other through our own experience that brought us towards something united and that we're continuing to build those links and bridges of solidarity across struggles. We've seen the same discourse play out in Hong Kong, numerous other struggles. And I think we're like now opening this space for debate uh, and hopefully, you know, we're, we're getting much bigger, those of us who are trying to bring in an internationalist perspective um, to, to political struggles and also trying to bring in an anti-authoritarian perspective. I think we're growing um, all the time. Yeah, no, I I was just reflecting while, while you guys were talking about your contributions um, on also what Joey said at the beginning about how, you know, being pro-Palestine is kind of easy in these spaces. What I kind of wanted to bring to light or or or, or to discuss at length in in the piece um, or in my part of the piece was that fact, uh, the fact that I mean, obviously, not to downplay anti-Palestinian racism and anti-Palestinian bias in the larger like liberal uh, space that still exists, um, but in like leftist spaces, like you know the the DSA or like certain organizations like that, like being pro-Palestine is more accepted. And something that I noticed and how I kind of fell into these discussions is because I was for a time in the Arab world in the context of not, to, you know, again, not to claim that it's a very representative institution, but in the context of an institution that's pan-Arab, you know, it has people from all over different kinds of different kinds of people from the Arab world and something like a tanky mentality was not accepted, it was seen as fringe. Um, so even if there were maybe a few individuals associated with that institution that may have harbored certain ideas about Syria or things like that, it was like they genuinely could not express it. Because, you know, I'm I'm I was in an institution where like it's not just, you know, Palestine focused, it's you know, discussing the issues around the region. And many of the people that I worked with had directly been impacted by Iran, had directly been impacted by Russia, you know? So it, it seemed like a no-brainer. And then I start getting online <laughs> and then I move back to the U.S. and I'm I'm flabbergasted at the differentiation in the discourse. Um, what was considered completely fringe, like the Max Blumenthal's of the world are seen as you know, more valid um, in, in Western leftist spaces. And I, I was just really um, outraged by that because I don't see Palestine as being, you know, as a Palestinian, I don't see Palestine as being separate from any of these issues that are occurring in the region or in the world. And I think that all of these struggles are connected in in, in, a ver in various ways that, that comes out in the themes of my research, comes out in, in any activism I have uh, engaged in. And so, it may have been easy for me to just talk about Palestine. I think that a lot of Palestinian activists do that, but I just couldn't understand how we could build power in in you know that kind of siloing and that kind of fragmentation in accepting you know allies that harbor 
anti-Ukrainian views or anti-Syrian views. I just I just didn't. I th- I thought it was morally obviously repugnant, but also strategically very poor. And just to be clear, like the fact that amongst young people, in latest polling here in the United States, eighteen to twenty-four, I think thirty percent of them would vote for somebody like RFK Jr. Like that tells you what what this kind of like anti you know alt imperial anti imperialist or whatever however we wanted to describe this kind of viewpoint how much damage it's done to leftist spaces that you know we we risk a Trump again or or you know even worse um, given given the environment the last thing I wanted to say just really briefly is to comment on Romeo's discussion of how like we're seen as somehow outside the fold like. Ukrainian Syrians. Yassin al-Hashsada, who's a Syrian activist and theorist, like talks about the Syrianization of the world. Like you are in this like periphery and you're outside the fold of like humanity and 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 what the rules that exist for, you know, human rights and human dignity don't apply to you. And the danger is that's spreading. It's not just Syria. Um and it, it won't be just Ukraine and it won't be just Palestine, but leftists just don't make those connections. <laughs> Yeah, one thing, um, okay, so obviously a number of things, but uh, there's this amazing term that we, uh, at least I learned after our thing was published, which is Sumud washing. So there's a piece published on Kohl Journal, K-O-H-L, I will put it in the description, by Nehruz Abu Hatoum and, and Razan Razawi. It's this, um, it's called a journal for body and gender research, it's a pretty good, pretty good journal. And so they, they coined this term Sumud washing, uh, Sumud washing as a um, pretty specifically in terms of like positionality, Syrian-Palestinian queer feminist decolonial lens. Sumud is the Arabic for like um, steadfastness. And it, it used to be, I mean, to some extent, I guess still is, Dana, you can correct me, but like associated with uh, the Palestinian cause, but also any different types of resistance against uh, Arab regimes at the time, especially those that were seen as allied with Israel. And the thing is that the Arabic language has those terms like they already exist and for example in lebanon uh, it doesn't make sense to say tanky like that doesn't mean anything but we can easily identify the quote-unquote left the you know like the parts of the communist party and so on that are sort of like pro hezbollah or like um they whitewash hezbollah and we just call them momena like we have that term and the mukawame obviously is is the resistance and now it's basically synonymous with hezbollah but it's not used in the sense of, like, even I may use the term mukawame without actually meaning, oh, they are the resistance. It's just, this is the title that they are. This is what you, in the same way, like, you know, Al-Qaeda is, you know, I'm not calling them Al-Qaeda. I don't know how to translate these things. Sorry, listeners. No, no, they've appropriated yes, yeah, yeah. resistance. Exactly. Like, that's what, that's how they Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There are these nuances that I guess can be difficult when translating them into English or in, in different contexts or whatnot. But that's why um, I'm grateful for that term, smooth washing. I will definitely be using it. I'll be referencing it. I will try and, will try and maybe do something on it very specifically at some point because it's very specific to the Arab world. And it does pertain, or it is connected if we want to, at the very least, the Syrian, Palestine, and Lebanon sections that we were covering in that essay. I would be very interested to look at how it, the parallels with the Ukrainian context, the differences, maybe some, that's something we can pin for now. But essentially, it means like uh, the Syrian regime, pretty notoriously for those who kind of are from Syria or even Palestinians who grew up in Syria and so on, um, 
uses this resistance against Israel narrative to effectively justify everything. And we know this from the early days. And people on the Lebanese left, and authoritarian Lebanese left, to be more specific, know this history quite well because we know, and I'm glad um, uh, the piece uh, on Kohl Journal um, were, mentioned that, that the Syrian regime intervened in Lebanon in order to crush the Palestinian uh, resistance at the time. And this is one of those things that like, many people already know, but it's almost, it's almost like it's been uh, siloed into like, I don't know, a part of our brain, compartmentalized, like we don't want to think about it too much. But like, this facilitated the more known, I suppose, invasion of, uh, of, Israel, of Lebanon by Israel in 1982. Because by then, the, the big coalition that was pretty much winning uh, by the 76-77 by the era, what is now called the Lebanese Civil War, uh, they had like 85 or 90% of the territory between the, the Palestinian, the Lebanese nationalists, the Lebanese communists, the pan-Arabists, all of that stuff. Not Lebanese nationalists, sorry. Pan-Arab uh, nationalists and so on. They, they were the biggest alliance by far. And uh, the, the minority essentially was the, the, what are now, like we call them, the, they call themselves the Lebanese nationalists, but effectively they were like right-wing Christian militias associated with the Maronite bourgeoisie at the time. And so they were losing, the, that small elite, whatever, uh, group of people were losing. And it was Hafez al-Assad himself who basically, either directly or indirectly, this is not something that we know for sure, obviously, because these things are not exactly transparent, but let know the Americans that he will take care of it, essentially. And you would, you would assume that this was also done with Israel's knowledge, or at least approval, or whatever. And we know for a fact, anyway, that after 82, after Israel invaded, uh, Israel was kicked out in 2000, so that's 18 years. And Israel, uh, sorry, Syria wasn't kicked out, or the Assad regime wasn't kicked out before 2005. She had an 18 years overlap between the Israelis occupying southern Lebanon and the Syrians basically occupying the rest of Lebanon. And by Syrians, I mean the Syrian regime here, the Syrian army. Basically, de facto occupying the rest of Lebanon. I, I still remember the checkpoints and stuff like that. And they obviously had made a truce. To, to, to make that possible. And in, throughout that entire period, and continuing to this day, Israel has been occupying the Golan Heights, the Jolan. And so um, Razan and, I'm sorry, I forgot the other person's name, Nairouz's uh, piece on Kohol talks about that very specific positionality, that of the Jolani, the, the Syrian from the Golan Heights, uh, and their positionality vis-a-vis -vis both Israel, which has, been, which has annexed de facto, at least recognized by the U.S., not the jury, obviously, the Golan Heights and the Assad regime, which they, the like Jaolani activists and leftists and so on, would always describe like the Assad regime would always be hostile to them because they're seen as like two Israelis or, or whatever terms they're, you know, basically seen with, with contempt, if not with suspicion and so on. Um, and those are, their, those are their positionality, those are the experiences that kind of drew me into the Syrian context in Syria specifically before, before even knowing much about the Golan Heights. Uh, it was the Yarmouk experience. So the Palestinian refugee camp in Damascus, or outside Damascus, I don't know how these things are called, um, that was dis utterly destroyed, like almost virtually eradicated by the Assad regime in a way that we in Lebanon haven't seen since like Israel tried to do the same for the entire city of Beirut, for example, uh, in 1982. Um, and yet there was this complete disconnect in some people's mind, which I discovered later on, not at the time, because I was still in Beirut, and like I just had, what was happening in Yarmouk was just a, 
it wasn't part of this online discursive battle. It was just like, this shit is happening and we are seeing photos and images and videos and people literally leaving anyway. So people would literally be telling us because like, it's not that far. <laughs> Lebanon is tiny, uh, one of the smallest countries in the world. And so it was just this lived experience thing, you know, in the same way that if, if from Gaza, if from Gaza, this was possible, like geographically, we would be hearing the same things of people fleeing and coming to Lebanon, for example, and telling us the same things. But there was an easier communication between uh, parts of this, or at least this Mumena side of the quote-unquote left in Lebanon. Um, and I, I don't know how to define them. Like, I don't know if they technically on the left they are, but they're, I don't know. Like, they're, they're pretty, pretty right-wing on a lot of things as well. I mean, they're not really left if we think about left morally, but yeah. they claim the left yeah. and they're accepted yeah. by the left, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, they're, they're, they are the reason why in Lebanon there is almost this exception when, or now less so since 2019 revolution, but there's this exception when it comes to Hezbollah that is like when you say like Kilonian and Kilon, like all of them means all of them, there is a like, but do you really mean all of them? Like that kind of thing, like it be, it's a bit of a, it's a bit more difficult to criticize Hezbollah than it is to criticize the right wing parties like Lebanese forces or, or what have you. Now less so, now it's much more open, but at the time it was definitely more difficult. By the way, all of this to say that uh, the Mumena types, uh, almost had like a direct line of communication with a lot of people in Gaza. And you physically cannot go to Gaza, obviously, from Lebanon because Israel has the blockade. But it was there, whereas with Yarmouk, like the border between Lebanon and, and Syria was kind of technically still open, definitely, you know, not closed uh, because you can't, because that's like most of Lebanon. Um, and, you know, you would have these stories left and right, but they would kind of be falling on deaf ears, to use that, that, that metaphor. And that, that's what kind of led me to, one of, the reason, one of the things that led me to question a lot of the sort of the assumptions that I thought I, that I had vis-a-vis the left, in the sense that like this, we are the moral side, we're, we're the good guys or whatever, you know, we, we, we hate oppression, uh, not our thing, we don't like it and so on. And in the beginning, I got into it through my like Palestinian background and activism and all of that stuff. And I just assumed, uh, very naively in retrospect, that it's the same logic that would just be extended to those other uh, contexts. Like, of course, Israel, what's doing to Palestine, bad. What Assad is doing to Syria, it's bad. And that's it. Like, that, that's the end of it. We should be talking about other things now. It wasn't, the fact that it was a sticking point in and of itself always bugged me before I was more drawn into kind of I don't know, thinking about it politically and trying to make sense of it. And this is after that, like reading Syrian accounts and Yassin Hashtag was a big one at the time and Jumhuria, Leila's writings for that matter, a bunch of other folks' writings. This was a, this is when I started understanding. And of course, on Twitter and Facebook, a lot of Syrians talking about this thing that now Romeo, honestly, I, I wish there was a way of just getting these archives very efficiently and very quickly because I could just change, like instead of Syria, the word Syria, you put the word Ukraine. Or in Hong Kong at the time, of course, like it was the, the complaints were so similar that I, I think Laila, I talked to you about this once, like I felt insane. Like I felt I was losing my mind at how similar these things are and yet how obvious they were in my brain and yet how not obvious they seemed to be elsewhere. Or at least there was this very difficulty. There, there was this difficulty talking about it. And so... This is sort of kind of a bit of the background of like my, my motivation, if you want, or whatever. And then it sort of just followed from there. So this podcast and other stuff and whatnot, like just, you know, a Ukrainian who's saying this exact same thing and 
because of the algorithm or whatever the fuck works on Twitter slash whatever the fuck it's called now and stuff like that, they would meet, uh, you know, Syrian or they would hear about this experience and then maybe on Taiwan and, you know, you would have those things in the replies like Taiwanese people saying, yeah, we went through this as well. Oh, sorry, Hong Kong is saying, we went through this as well or Taiwanese saying like, we are talked about this way as well and so on and so forth. And yeah, so some thoughts on your part and then I'll take it to the next stage of this conversation. I think one of the problems is is that instead of having a copy and paste or consistency again on moral values and standards that Dana related to, what you actually have a copy and paste of is narrative. And that narrative is that the US is always uh, evil, anyone opposing the US is good. And you see, that's the reason you could copy and paste any of these statements written about Ukraine from Syria or, or many other struggles, because the narrative doesn't change. It's completely irrelevant what the local context is, what the politics is, what the history is, what the economic situation is, what the culture is. The narrative stays the same. It doesn't adjust according to, to different struggles. What we should be having consistency with uh, our values and our principles that we're against oppression, that we're against injustice, that we support people in struggle against oppressive regimes or support people in struggle against imperialist powers, whether those imperialisms are Western imperialisms or they're Russia or they're Iran. It's funny, Joey, that w- when you started talking about um, this, like, uh, you know, Assad bad and we move on. Like that's the end of the discussion. It's pretty obvious. Cause I had a very clear flashback to the beginning of the regime's um war against its own people, basically. And I remember sitting in college and discussing it with uh, a couple of my classmates. And I, I literally went, well, I mean, he's a dictator bombing his own people. It's pretty clear, like he's an asshole and should be removed. There wasn't like there, there, there wasn't even the close the the thought that this is that there was another way to evaluate it that I have to look at American geopolitical interests and think is this bad for America? Like, no, that doesn't matter. Like, he, the 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 moral lesson here is completely clear, and I didn't draw that connection with my experiences in Ukraine uh, until just now because I had the exact same feeling. Now that I think about it, like it's it's morally obvious that. You shouldn't um, invade your neighbor in a explicit war of conquest. Like, that's obviously evil. And the fact that that isn't the end of discussion, and we we keep having to explain basically what is, I think, kindergarten-level morality to people who are, suppo- are, are basing their whole ideology on we are the good guys, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. I had this theory that I need to elaborate at some point, but that this is, it's not that different from, or at least in essence, it's not that different from what we call realpolitik, like of the Kissinger variety. And I mean, I hope this variety doesn't last as long as Kissinger lasts because he's already 100 years old. It is that in sense that we have to, I remember, you know, I think it was Owen Jones, one of the British left-wing commentators or whatnot, who described Ukraine as or at least describe like that entire area or whatever as part of like Russia's sphere of influence. And that uh that's a that's a kiss like that's a Kissinger terminology. The fact that the world can be or like that's that's a 
Fukuyama situation like that. The fact that you can divide the world in those camps, essentially, is by definition a campus worldview. And that's not something that has never really been something outside of the like the Stalinist and all of its echoes um, around the world variety. It, it hasn't been that. It wasn't that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to romanticize the left's history necessarily. Lots of fucked up things happened as well in left-wing spaces and whatnot. But in terms of basic understanding of like, literally you go on Wikipedia and you write left-wing politics, that sort of thing is should be at least non-negotiable. I'm not saying that there is no that there can be no room for discussion of what to do and what not to do and whatnot, but there has to always be this fundamental in the same way like you know in the US right now the whole transphobic shit by the right is non-negotiable. Like this is not something that we can or should be compromising on. And the same thing, you know, supposedly in Europe it should be a non-controversial thing to say like we support migrant rights and refugee rights although these days it's not it's not as uncontroversial anymore obviously as it should be let's say there, there are lots of left-wing parties that are very not uh pro-migrant uh to, to, I, i'm wearing a shirt migration is not a crime on purpose because it's still a thing it's a problem anyway sorry i know that now you wanted to say something um i was just uh you know absorbing what you guys are talking about and how like you've lost <laughs> the motivation to even explain, you know, uh, and I totally get that. But I think we also should differentiate that like leftists um, that maybe are active as even maybe minimally as organizers or in, in these kinds of organizations are different from like the rest of society, frankly, like normal people. And then even amongst leftists, there's like the people who are like confused and don't know. And then there's the people who are actively taking this position. Um, and the reason I say that is because like, if you think about like Palestinian public opinion, like it was actually quite pro-Syrian revolution. And then when it comes to the Ukrainian issue, it's very polarized. There's like 40% who blame uh, Russia, 30% who blame Ukraine, and like some people who don't know. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but they're in the piece. So Joey will link to that. But the point is, I think for most normal people who are not part of this kind of milieu of discussion, it's, it's very clearly a moral issue. But because of the Russian disinformation, the the narratives by thought leaders, by, you know, these organizers that have an outsized voice, even if there's not a lot of them, then it starts to muddle the picture for normal people. And then even, like I said, even amongst people who consider themselves like actively part of the left, there are some people who, you know, just don't know and absorb that confusion. And then some who I think are such Western chauvinists that they center themselves without really, you know, critically thinking about that, that genuinely believe only U.S., like, U.S. intervention is the worst evil. And so anything that might facilitate a discussion on U.S. intervention should be shut down. Even if we pretend that Bashar, like, they know everything about Yarmouk. They know everything, you know, everything you just mentioned. But we're going to pretend like that didn't happen. We're gonna absolutely like play this game of narratives and 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 disinformation because we have a higher goal, which is to stop any kind of U.S. intervention. Um, and it's it's gotten to the point like like you, I I really went through some mental health struggles when I started you know commenting online because I was being harassed so often about things that I thought were so simple. 
people would, were like scoffing at me when I used the word authoritarian. And I'm like, are we, am I like in a parallel reality? Like, do, does authoritarianism not exist in your world? Like, but that's the level of discourse that we have to deal with because though, like there are certain people who are doing it on purpose. They are doing it to muddle the discussion. Um, and unfortunately, those people have winnowed their way into major organizations and have have like done such damage to especially like younger folks who are absorbing this kind of information. But yeah, I just thought like I should differentiate between normal people <laughs> and like non-normals. I, I count myself as a non-normal here, just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird to me because I definitely remember maybe maybe I am hallucinating. Maybe we did all cross into a into like a parallel reality because I I have like pretty distinct memories during the the US war in Iraq um that uh people would like people on the left would criticize the the uh these dictators like Assad for uh cooperating with the US like everyone it was public information that Assad allowed the US to operate black sites uh, in, in Syria like this was not this was not some hidden thing this was one of the main critiques of many of, of, of these regimes is that they allowed, uh, they worked with the U.S. and they allowed the U.S. to um, basically do all of the, it's a horrible legal torture uh, bullshit on their, uh, on their territory in exchange for dollars. Um, and then you fast forward, not really that long, and it's like that just didn't happen, that, that, that that's not anything. You bring it up, people accuse you of like, parroting cia talking points like what what happened it's it's just a decade that's what's and it's one of those things that you know you have those books like um i should have sent a like because now i forgot the name of the author uh i'll remember it at some point but like you know it's almost like describing the interwar period interwar period as in between the first world war and second world war in, in europe and the west and even honestly the rest of the world as kind of a special period because of what happened after rather you know and obviously what happened before and there is something there's something to be said about those that decade because it's literally like 2001 you know between 9/11 and 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 the arab spring it's just 10 years that's kind of insane uh given everything that has happened basically in my teenage years and it's 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 something that i've been kind of pondering and maybe like with a bit more distance at some point i'll be able to or we maybe we can able to kind of reflect on this a bit more and whatnot because a lot of the things that we're talking about now as being um, like almost taken for granted, you know, the tanky stuff or whatever, was a bit more in flux at the time. And there was a bit more, def- I would, I don't know, maybe confusion would be, the, I'm not sure what the term would be, but there was definitely more. Well, there was less like direct international intervention yes, yeah, in yeah. these discussions to yeah. weaponize them. Yeah. There was less Chinese funding and yeah. Russian funding. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah, that's that's the thing because I and the the example I always think of to go back to the whole Mumena thing is that in the beginning of the Arab Spring, Hassan Nasrallah, the, the the leader of Hezbollah, gave a speech basically celebrating the brave people, the brave our brave Arab brothers and whatever on the streets and stuff like that, because that was before it really came to Syria. Uh, it was already starting in Syria, but there was this. There was a, a period of time, and I remember there's an interview with Ju- that he did with Julian Assange, which is, I think, still online, which is a fascinating thing as a, as a document. Basically, saying, like, you know, we're even negotiating between the, the opposition and the, and the government or, you know, stuff like that. And 
calling them the opposition, right? Like calling them, there was, there was a sense of like, we, we're, we're not fully, not fully on board necessarily. And that's why a lot of Syrians and Palestinians for that matter were maybe still on, on defense about Hezbollah, wondering whether, wait, are they going to be on our side? Are they not? You know, we're getting mixed messages here, that sort of thing. Of course, many others had no illusions about that. But that's what I sort of uh, remembered. And I know that, for example, the intervention in Libya is this whole controversial thing, whatnot. And I don't want to get into it because I, I don't care at this point. But Hezbollah supported it. And Lebanon officially asked the UN to, Lebanon was one of the signatories in that, in that uh, resolution at the UN to allow intervention to prevent Muammar Gaddafi's uh, threats against the population to stop them. And Lebanon had no problem with that because there is this internal Lebanese thing, especially within Hezbollah and Amal, which I won't get into as much, but that had to do with really hating Muammar Gaddafi. And this is something that uh, gets lost in these discussions, you know, that at the end of the day, we're talking like he's, you know, as a, as a figure, for example, romanticized. I know this is a problem in, in some Pan-African spaces, for example, that he's romanticized as this Pan-African figure and whatnot. And the guy was like an open racist who was chilling with Berlusconi. Like facts don't matter in, in, these, in these spaces. They just don't, not, not to mention a misogynist. Like these things just don't matter in these spaces. And that's why for me, I, I'm finding it fascinating, for lack of a better term, that we are, in a, we are at a time now when it's almost like you can almost predict that like if there is some kind of normalization uh, discussion with Israel, like the Arab states, there seems to be in parallel or maybe just after a renormalization with the Assad regime. Like they're, they're almost following one another. And there's something happening. And I'm not saying like in the conspiracy way. I'm just saying that. No, no, it's just, it's just like a, the Western world's, the Western establishment's agreement that the way to deal with these pesky peripheries is authoritarian conflict management. Yeah. Like that's conflict it. Conflict management. Whether exactly. it's Israel, whether it's, the Syrian regime being normalized, it's it's the same really underlying policy, yeah. which is these people don't, they can't have democracy. They won't have human rights. Mm -hmm. Maybe they can have subsistence. <laughs> I, I think the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict is a perfect encapsulation of this because literally in real time, um, you see the West basically turning a blind eye um, to the... Uh, literally just genocide right of, of armenians in uh karabakh and Artsakh. um did, like regardless of what you might think are the merits of the armenian or azerbaijani side uh I, I think people shouldn't be starved right that's a pretty that's a pretty easy thing to see but um there's there's basically no pushback from anyone um any country any leaders in the west against these area actions it's just Okay, we we cut off Russian oil, but we still need Russian oil. Um, but Azerbaijan is willing to sell us Russian oil and claim that it's theirs. Uh, that means we're we're just not going to say a word. Whatever they do, we don't care. It's all the Armenians brought it on themselves. And when you bring it up in a left perspective, uh, people are just like, "Oh, they're just like uneducated mountain peoples. They're just going to kill each other and fight." Like there's 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 no left wing analysis apparently. Um, which is again just just insane because how can you really see yourself as the good guys if you're just willing to ignore um clearly like moral judgments on ongoing events it, 
Um, I, I've said it boggles my mind, but every time I think about this, I, I just, I really try not to think about this in my daily life, but every time I, I think about it, I'm just stunned really by, by the, the double think that's become so commonplace. Yeah. We've heard so many times like Arabs aren't ready for democracy and they need an authoritarian strong man to keep them in power. And it just shows again, the absolute disconnect between the discourse and the reality, because what we saw in Syria, of course, was that when the state was pushed out of two thirds of the country, uh, people implemented themselves a very grassroots participatory um, democracy. It was democracy that people were fighting for and that we see that actually the only obstacle to democracy that we have um, in Syria and I imagine in many of the countries in the region are these authoritarian regimes. Mm-hmm. And so to bring us back to a bit of the kind of the headline, right, that the, like anti-imperialism from the periphery Maybe we can, and we're coming up to an hour here as a way of like slowly, um, slowly wrapping up because it's one of those conversations that honestly can last 10 hours. Uh, and I've been told listeners don't want to sit to my voice for 10 hours, uh, which I don't understand why, to be honest. So what is it about the periphery? You know, you know, South-South movement, right? There is something about that. Like it's a South to South movement. And there's this other term, right? Like the global East. Uh, to talk about, quote-unquote, the post-Soviet space as well, as a different thing, related but different, to this kind of almost in-between, to simplify things that matter, between like the global south and the global north. All of these are questionable, problematic, to be criticized, to be critiqued, whatever, uh, concepts, but they may, at least for the, in the short term, help us at least think, about certain, think through certain things. Because the term Global South uh, has its critiques, obviously, and I, I've tried to make them as well. Not that I, I don't use it or I think it's completely useless or whatever, but there's something about like China that feels... Uh, the term Global South doesn't really apply that much anymore in that same way. That there are these other qualifications that need to be added to, to talk about different... There's a, mm-hmm. there's a- a south in the north and a north in the south. Yeah, that, that's it. And, you know, there's a cent- there are centers in the north uh, and there are peripheries in the north. Like the banlieues of Paris are technically part of the global north, but they're not treated as such by the global north, <laughs> by, 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 you know, the Paris government, the, go- the French government. There's something about that. And we, we know this, you know, obviously recent, with the recent uprisings of like, colonial ex-colonial subjects being treated similarly to how colonial subjects would have been treated because they are themselves descendants for the most part of what used to be colonial subjects and there's something there there's something about uh the way russia talks about ukrainians the way putin himself has talked about ukrainians is not that dissimilar from how any kind of like dominant Political power, for example, the the Chinese Communist Party has talked about Uyghurs. Really, of course, there are differences here and there, and in in there in, in in China, it's like well, as long as you stop being Muslims and stop being Uyghurs, you're you're welcome to become Chinese. And it's it's that kind of um, with Putin, right? Like it, it's Novo Russia. It's like oh well, they're actually Russians in denial or whatever. And there is that there is that dimension to it, which I think that if folks don't take that into account, that this is a very um, violent and authoritarian way of seeing the world. The rest of the isms are kind of pointless. Uh, Romeo, I know, for, like you've mentioned this a number of times, that at the end of the day, 
the whole debates as to like what kind of weapons should Ukrainians take and where should they say no and whatnot. It's like give them the options in the first place. Like that that's kind of the thing. Like where are the warplanes? Uh, I don't want cl- because of the whole cluster bomb thing. I I understand clearly they're not good and they're very bad for everything. But still, where are the warplanes? Like wh- what can be done in that situation? Given that what they are asking for is either not given or it's given very late or you know and so on and so forth. And while at the same time, of course, we know a lot of Western diplomats still complaining that like Ukrainians are asking too much or, or whatever. And I don't know if you remember, Romeo, just as a kind of a parenthesis, and I'm going to shut myself up. But in the beginning of the, this entire thing, I, I kind of said, and I've been repeating this a number of times, that like what Ukrainians need to immediately understand is that they don't need, they shouldn't be asking the West, they should be demanding that they should, and they should recognize like, and honestly, they did that. So like, it's not like, oh, they should, they didn't. But like, just remember at all times that whatever solidarity, support, whatever is coming from the West is always fragile. It's always like at the moment's end can stop overnight as Trump did with supposed allies, you know, in the Kurdish areas of northern Syria and stuff like that. Like this is, this has always been a thing with the Americans, especially, but honestly with Europe as well. And that all of the discourse and whatnot that misses that aspect that is very ephemeral and that this is about stopping as stopping Russia, Russia as much as possible, as quickly as possible, because we don't know, you know, we the Ukrainians here, like don't know uh, how long the support can come. And obviously, if the support stops or gets worse or whatnot, uh, this can already make things more difficult and so on and so forth. That that sheer pragmatism for me, if it's not like what survival um, question, if it's not like at the forefront of any debate of like what do, what should we do, then. It, it's sort of saying like the geopolitics, the real politique can always be, can always trump, uh, pun intended, other questions. And that's why, like, for me, the, the question of like the right to intervene, the duty to intervene is a complicated one, but is one that the left should be engaging with. And it's one that, for the most part, we pretend is either not there, like, there are no contexts ever at any context in which we need, we quote, the people in the West, whatever. The states that would be, in theory, capable of doing so should intervene. Like there are no context whatsoever, which makes the World War II kind of an awkward example for those who want to think about it. But, and that's why they end up not wanting to think about Bosnia, not wanting to think about the Rwandan genocide, not wanting to think about Kosovo for that matter, because or Libya, because this this brings up these questions that are, and it's easier to just say, oh well, it's all like it's like Iraq, you know, Libya is like Iraq, because if you say that. 2003, like Libya 2011 is like Iraq 2003. Because if you say that, you don't have to think anymore. You don't have to think about Libya. You don't have to think about Gaddafi. You don't have to think about the people on the ground. You don't have to think about any of this. You can just think, well, it's like close enough to Iraq on the map, uh, you know, whatnot, whatever. Like uh, they had it good, clearly, and it's all conspiracy, color revolution, etc., etc. It's easier. It's an easier way of thinking about the world. And it's maybe comforting for some to just think in those simplistic binaries. But I keep on worrying that if there aren't these basic values that are non-negotiable, that have to do with like, for lack of a better term, like the sanctity of human life, you know, whatever, like these very basic things, if they are debatable, I, I, I feel like we kind of already lost the debate because it's all, the right is always going to do a better job at that. Like they're always going to be better nationalists, as Moshe Postone um, once said, like the right are always better nationalists than the left. And we shouldn't be playing that game. We should be changing the rules of the game. And that, that ends my TED Talk. So thank you for listening, everyone. And I'm going to leave our guests to 
uh, end on their thoughts and recommendations and and call 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 to arm and propaganda and all of the above. Really quick before we wrap up here, I just want to um, address one of the things you said there, Joey, uh, which is the, um, the this idea that the, that aid is very conditional. Um, I, I just wanted to note that, uh, in fact, some of the biggest criticisms um, from Europe, even from the UK, which has been um, shockingly one of the more stalwart, stalwart partners of Ukraine, has been that Ukraine's asked too much. This is something you heard pretty much constantly from French and, and German diplomats, especially um, in the, the first year of the full-scale invasion, is that Ukraine wants too much. They're not grateful enough. There was just a scandal um, just a few weeks or a month ago uh, where the UK defense uh, secretary, or is he the former defense secretary now? I don't remember. He's, is he, if, uh, yeah. Um, but Ben Wallace, uh, who was a UK defense secretary very recently, um, gave an interview to some Lithuanian paper where he was also seemingly complaining that the Ukrainians, uh, that we were asking for too much, that we were not grateful enough for the help that we've received. Um, and I think this this is one thing that Ukrainians are aware of. We're very aware that that aid can dry up pretty much um, at, at any moment. Uh, and we are very aware that de democratic countries can change governments, and those new governments um, can have completely different priorities with regards to us than the previous government. Um, so there's no there's no stability there. But at the same time, um, there's not much to do to to kind of tie it even to a, a even earlier point that you made the global east, which I hadn't I hadn't heard that term before, but it kind of makes sense. Um, the I think one of the big differences between the post-Soviet world, to, to use that trite phrase, and the, the global South um, is that by and large, these, the, these countries want to become more European. Um, but what they see Europe as is not quite how Europe itself sees itself. Um, we see Europe as um, transparent, anti-corrupt, uh, with a level playing field, rule of law. We don't, Europe is not conceived as a um, colonial oppressor that's grown fat off the, uh, the blood of its slaughtered subjects. It's, it's seen as a troubled region that managed to rebuild itself um, while we, after 30 years of independence, haven't been able to match their speeds. And for Ukraine, this is especially um, resonant because we just look at Poland. Uh, Poland is not just our neighbor geographically, but a lot of Ukrainians have ties to Poland. Um, there's a lot of cultural connections. Uh, they left the Soviet Union in about the same situation um, that we did, uh, but they are remarkably better off um, than Ukraine. Uh, they've managed to, like, build themselves into what Ukrainians consider a European nation. Um, and I think this is going to be a, a big sticking point, um, or, or rather, this is going to be something that I hope um, discussions like we're having uh, now that we've had um, will examine more thoroughly, because I think there is um, somewhere to think about how 
the the things that Ukraine thinks Europe is is not, I think, something that is a European exclusive thing. But like a lot of European nationalists or whatever you want to call them, um, European chauvinists say that this is a uniquely like European thing that we are uniquely. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, I, I think these values are universal. People want transparent governments. People want rule of law. These are objectively things that make life better for, you know, Joe Schmuck, like the average person on the street. Um, and these are not magical European values that can only be adopted if we, like, throw away all of our identity and, and say we're European now. Um, and I think it's it's stressing the, the kind of universality of uh, those ideals, I think, is going to be very important to continue to build uh, solidarity and, and connections between the global east and global south, as you put it. Oh, and my recommendation, since we're wrapping up here, um, read. Uh, I, I, I recently started reading um, on, I forget whose recommendation, but thank you, whoever that was. Um, I'm no longer talking about, uh, talking to white people about race by Rennie Etta Lodge. Um, a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic book. Um, if you are uh, white in the West and you want to know why we get so, why us uh, uppity uh, people of color get so um, annoyed and upset and frustrated when you guys try to talk to us about this, read this book and then never talk to us about it again. <laughs> and if you are a person of color who has never been able to really articulate the, the constant frustrations, Read the book and you'll um, get a very clear sense that, A, you're not alone. Uh, we pretty much all feel this and why, uh, why we feel this and why it's so difficult to get it through your, your white friends' heads. Um, the, the frustrations and the uh, indignities that, that we kind of face on a daily basis. It's important to add, like as an important caveat or disclaimer, that we do not hate white people. Some of my best friends are, are, are whites. Uh, for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I guess. Just very quickly, I was thinking, because I'm right now just reading novels. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm being a bit taking a step back from work. So I was thinking, what's a good thing to recommend that's related to this discussion? I think everybody should check out Commons, uh, which is a Ukrainian uh, platform and journal. Um, they had a couple of different, inter one interview with Joey, one interview with uh, Kavita Krishnan. Um, there's an interview with me coming out in September. So I think it touches a lot on the themes that we discussed um, in this podcast. So yeah, link that, Joey. You should link that. And I totally, totally forgot to prepare a recommendation, even though I've been on this podcast numerous times and know that it's coming. So I haven't got anything uh, to share today. That's that's yeah, it's fine. I uh, I'm I'm currently reading a novel called Terra Incognita, uh, Terra Ignota. That's that's the term by Edda Palmer. It's a part of a trilogy that's set in like the 25th century, and they talk about. I want I would not give it justice here, but it's like different societies have been built by then, and it it's it's one of those things where the world building is basically what's really good about it. Um, but it's it's a fascinating thing that I highly recommend. So anyway, on this uh, topic, uh, thank you all for doing this. And as usual, 
Uh, the Fire These Times is a proud sponsor of Send Warplanes to Ukraine. Uh, if you would like a... I don't know how to continue this joke, sorry. But yeah, Send Warplanes to Ukraine, it's a good thing. Thank you, everything. Thank you, everyone. It was really great having you. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayu. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.